spending, it's not your fault. Well, it's not all your fault. With neuroscientists, psychologists, economists, and behavioral scientists all working to get you to buy, it's a wonder we don't spend all our money all the time. Reducing our spending buys us control and opportunity. Here's the one way to spend just enough and not a penny more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Joy of Financial Planning podcast. The topics of this podcast are a complement to the book, Joy of Financial Planning, now slated to launch in the fall of this year, 2019. The book is about overcoming the unique economic challenges we face as a generation. Through the strategies of financial planning, we can follow our passions, live with compassion, and still achieve our own version of the American dream. Today's topic is about spending. In the book, it's called The Joy of Enough, and it's broken into spending and earning. So today, this one is going to be about spending. And really, it isn't all of our fault. In this episode, we'll talk about the way that marketing and scientists are using their technology and their sense to get us to buy even without our thinking. In the episode, I also outlined four strategies for controlling spending and against all odds, being able to improve your financial life and then achieve the things that you want to achieve. I hope you enjoy it. In May of 2001, I visited France all by myself for 11 days. I split the time between Paris and Lyon because I'm cultured like that. Okay, not really. I knew one person in each city, so I figured, number one, I need to visit the country, and number two, I wanted to visit both people in the city. I knew it would take a while, um, and I knew that it would be fun, so I went for it. Looking back, I had a number of mini-adventures, like meeting a Swedish student on my first day and getting lost in Paris every day. I got locked out of my friend's flat the last night and would have slept in the stairwell had it not been for another friend, also coming from the United States, to share the space. This is years before Airbnb. It was an adventure, but one of the more lasting memories was my first day back to work. I thought about the money I had spent on the trip, especially during the week, and compared it to what I would have spent on lunches and just day-to-day life, and really it wasn't that much different. For a fleeting moment, I actually understood how some things are worth the delayed gratification of not spending today for something later, Uh, things like visiting other countries. So in a way, I was kind of millennial-like before millennial was a thing. I thought about it for a while, and I said to myself, I'm going to commit to saving all my discretionary income for a brand new purpose travel. Now, I'd like to tell you I economized and budgeted and maintained a monk-like discipline until my next international vacation. I'd like to tell you that, but it wasn't true. Despite the extraordinary experience of my first and only solo international adventure, I was the same person who didn't pay much attention to what I spent. When it came time for my next paycheck, just as usual, I continued eating out for lunch buying CDs, which are not compact. Well, they are compact discs. They're not certificates of deposit. They're these plastic things that um, people of my generation used to actually buy to listen to music. We don't do that anymore, but back in the day, that's what I did. Okay, I'm really a Gen Xer, not a millennial. 
Over the course of the year, I spent money on things that essentially were not a high priority for me. And the only things that hemmed in my spending were the non-discretionary expenses, things like rent, my car payment, my student loan payment. Does this sound familiar? Let me take you back to the 20th century. In the mid-1990s, I was a full-time college student and a full-time bank teller. I kept busy. I worked for Household Bank, which was purchased by Central Fidelity, which was purchased by Wachovia, which was purchased by First Union, but retained the Wachovia name because First Union had a bad name. And then both entities were essentially purchased by Wells Fargo. So unfortunately, I have six degrees of connection to Wells Fargo. Maybe that's closer to five. In those days, there was no internet, and so to keep track of a person's money, you either had to come into the branch um, or get a monthly bank statement through the snail mail and just kind of wait. So if people didn't want to wait, they would visit the branch, and they'd come in asking for this thing called a quote-unquote printout, which all of us bank tellers knew was a preliminary statement of all the transactions to date. Even though most of the people coming into the branch Uh, were, well, I should say even then, you know, really most of the people coming into the branch were business owners and retirees, much like today, though it's even fewer today. They had reasons to keep up with their spending. You know, they were incredibly intentional about what they purchased. They were keeping things really close to the ledger. If you're a business person, you need to do that. I certainly can tell you that. Uh, And if you're a retiree, you had limited income. So these were the sort of big overarching reasons. This intentionality gave them what they were looking for, which was control over one of the most important parts of their overall finances, the cash flow, the negative side of the cash flow. So this is where I can introduce you to a concept that is really fighting against you when it comes to that negative side of the cash flow, and that's neuromarketing. So staying in the early 90s, in 1992, The National Livestock and Meat Board launched a campaign that, obviously, I still remember. See if you do. Beef. It's what's for dinner. I would like to launch a similar campaign. Spending. It's not your fault. Well, it's not all your fault. As Daniel Pink will tell you in his best-selling book, To Sell as Human, we've been selling and therefore been sold to, both by professionals and amateurs, for most of our lives. Now we have neuroscientists, psychologists, economists, and behavioral scientists all working to scientifically market slash sell to us all of the time during all of our lives. Have you ever heard of ethnographic study? I hadn't either until I started researching for my Joy of Financial Planning book. Apparently ethnography has a lot to do with the study of people in their own cultural and social situations. It's what marketing firms are essentially doing now instead of just A-B testing us on our website activity. Our interactions with products and services are being observed like some random Discovery Channel rerun of lions chasing gazelles. Business has definitely moved into the area of brain science, brain activity, and your innate reaction to marketing stimuli. In other words, they're just skipping past your logical assessment of value for your less consciously regulated emotional response. When you buy, it is your decision. It's just not always a conscious decision. So let's talk about that. How do you get past your own brain? In a world where business is neuromarketing and zero-second branding, which is a whole other crazy concept, how do you not react? What is the one way that you can fight this spending attack 
on the part of your brain where you're not even really paying attention. You become aware and you prepare. To become newly conscious to the spending imposed upon your amygdala, your lizard brain, take a few tangible steps. In fact, take four. In fact, that's what I'm listing here. Four steps. Do these steps. They're not rocket scientists um, like the sciences that are trying to attack you on helping you to spend more. But they're pretty simple and they're pretty effective. Number one, log into your bank account online. Number two, review each transaction for the past month. Number three, separate them into non-discretionary versus discretionary expenses. And number four, total each category. So step one, let's talk about that. You know, today you don't have to go into a bank branch to get a printout like those uh, overly cost conscious business owner and seniors that I met in the 1990s when I worked for that uh, crazy bank. Almost all of us can pull out our phones and log in to see what's going on. You may use the bank's application or you can use a third party application. Some of the popular ones are mint.com, you need a budget, which is ynab.com. There's a new one I found called countabout.com. I had never heard of it before, but um, it looks pretty good. Uh, so where you can just log on and you can see what's going on. And, and that's the really first step, taking a look just to see what's going on. Now, step two highlights, I suppose, a mistake that people make in the seeing and an opportunity. So the easiest transition from not really looking at your accounts is just to go and see that balance. Well, that's a good step, um, but really don't just do that. Uh, take a look at each transaction in addition to the balance. And look at those transactions and ask yourself, was that really the best use of my money at the time? Don't ask anyone else. This is your money. You know, when I work with clients, I tell them they're the kings and queens of their money. My job is to help make them more aware, to see what's going on. So it isn't a comparison against what they quote unquote should be doing. It's a comparison against what they are doing intentionally and what they're doing unintentionally. And I offer that to you. Ask yourself, is this the best use of my money at the time that I spent it? And step three is where you start thinking about using the programs I mentioned earlier beyond just your bank statement because your bank statement may not have or your bank um, online banking may not have this level of specificity. So a Mint, a YNAB, account about others. You can even use a spreadsheet if, um, if you just want to go old school. This will help you sort the transactions into things you feel like you have to spend on, like non-discretionary stuff and items that you feel you have choice around spending. Those are typically called your discretionary. And they can notice which list is longer, and this is usually an awakening, again, for the clients that I would typically work with. For most people, the list where you have more control is longer than the list where you don't think you have control. Because the list you, you don't think you have control, and I hope this is for you, oh, you're talking about rent, you're talking about some bills, uh, and then most of it, you know, those are bigger things typically than the, uh, the items you might spend in the other categories. How interesting is that, that the actual length of item categories is longer likely in your discretionary side of the ledger? That immediately should make you feel like you've got some control over your situation. That's step three. Step four, the final step, total those two categories the discretionary side and the non-discretionary side and ask yourself, 
if you intended to spend as much as you did in each category. So the first thing was to see how those categories, one was longer than the other. The next thing was actually to look at the actual dollars and see if you intended to spend as much. You know, for non-discretionary items like rent and mortgage payments, car payments, student loan payments, you know, you may say, well, I didn't intend to spend that much, but I don't have any choice. But you do. You know, whether it's uh, transportation, which is one of the biggest expenses that all of us have to deal with, your car may not have to be the latest model or the model that it is. It could be a used car um, that's, you know, still reliable. And we know the brands of cars that are reliable and that you could run into the dirt um, but aren't necessarily that expensive. Or you may not need a car at all, depending on where you live and where you work and, and what you do with your life. So you have choice around that car or slash car payment. You have choice around, you know, metro and, and where you park if you park at the metro and if you bike and, and all these kinds of things. So give yourself that license to say I have control. When it comes to where you live, obviously shelter is one of those things we should put in non-discretionary. But whether you rent or whether you have a mortgage, I mean, today mortgage rates are so low. If you have a mortgage and you got your rate, I don't know, two or three years ago, could you refinance? Would it be a benefit for you? Take a look at that. If you don't have a mortgage and you're renting, could you rent somewhere where it's less expensive? You have a choice. For those of you who are in the Washington, D.C. area, if you want to rent in a less expensive place, it'll mean your commute goes up. If your commute goes up, which might mean your car expenses have to go up. So these are decisions that you um, end up having to make. So your non-discretionary items end up actually turning into discretionary when you really take the time to look at them, especially looking at how much you're spending and how much you'd like to spend. And then, of course, the discretionary expenses. Most of us are used to that idea of saying, hey, are we spending too much on eating out? Are we spending too much on presents and gifts? Um, are you spending too much on, on clothes, for example? Most of us are used to someone kind of coming down on them and, you know, telling them, hey, shaking that finger, you shouldn't spend so much on these items. That isn't the point of step four. The point is, like the other steps before, is to be really intentional and ask yourself, did you buy any of those things because you thought about it, it was something that was important to you, and you said, I'm going to go ahead and get it when I can afford it, not, you know, just charge it on a credit card? Or did you buy it because a scientist attacked your limbic brain and made you feel like you could be more confident if you purchase that one thing and it turns out it's just a thing and it has nothing to do with confidence? Uh, this is the kind of stuff that you'll want to start thinking about and becoming more aware. You know, in a blog post I did and in the book, I, I kind of end this section with viewer discretion is advised. Excessive spending is not entirely our fault. We are taught it. We see it socially. We are encouraged to do it. And if you take my word for it, we're kind of manipulated into it by professionals. There are scientists whose sole purpose is to get us to buy, whether it's consciously or subconsciously. The greatest defense against the unintentional spending is awareness. Spending and saving can create similar highs. And so this isn't about, you know, hanging your head and, uh, and turning away from joy. In fact, this is the joy of enough, right? This is about saying, let me create the high that might actually be beneficial to me. And I've had a number of clients, sometimes they're at four figures and they're saving and they get to five figures and all of a sudden it becomes a great virtuous habit. 
And then there are some people who have great incomes and they have very low savings and it's getting to three figures, getting to four figures of savings, and then getting to five and six figures of savings. And wow, isn't that exciting? Isn't that something to shoot for? You know, if you are able to control this side of cash flow, this negative side of cash flow, this spending world, and know for yourself, not for anybody else, not for me or a financial advisor, anybody else, what is important for you, you're going to eventually be able to get what you want and what you want for your family. And when you're able to do that with a level of control and combining all the other joys, then you're going to have the capacity to do what you'd like to do for others, for fighting some of the ills you see in society that our institutions aren't able to basically take care of. Um, and that I think our generation is properly poised and positioned to essentially fight. I know you can do great for the world. I hope this concept, along with all the other concepts in this podcast and the ones in the book, are helpful to you. And I, I thank you for being willing to go out there and try so that you can be uh, great for the world. Thank you in advance for your service. If you have any feedback, please send a note to jason at jasonhowell.com. <laughs>